room for doubt. There's a lot of doubt about the Bible. Um, and this morning, I want to talk about that because here's the deal. If, if this was just like a book we liked to read, it, it would be one thing. And it wouldn't really matter if, if it was accurate or historical or inspired or any of those kinds of things. But as a Christ follower and, and as, as a Christian, and, and I know many of you are there, we have sort of said like this right here has everything that we need to know for life, both in this life and the life that is to come. And so we've sort of said like everything that's super important that we need to know and do and believe is found here in the text of Scripture. And so because we've sort of held this up to have such a high influence in our lives, to say that we would live our lives even under the authority of Scripture, it had better be able to stand up to scrutiny. There's really no two ways about it. If we're going to say this is the way that that teaches us about Jesus, who is God's ultimate revealed Word, then the Scripture itself has to be dependable. Otherwise, what are we basing our faith on? I mean, our faith is based on Jesus, but how do we know about who Jesus is? We know about it we know about him and his life and the, and the narrative of his, his death, burial, and resurrection that's all been passed down to us through Scripture. And so this morning, here's what I want to do as we continue this series, it is to go through in the next 30 minutes or so talking about what are some of the challenges that many people level against Scripture, and how as a Christian you know, would I respond to that, would this church respond to that, And it's my earnest prayer that if you're here this morning and you maybe believe the Bible and you want to believe the Bible, I hope that you'll get some good reasons why you can believe the Bible and you can trust in the Bible. Others of you are here this morning and maybe you've had those questions asked about Scripture and you've wondered about those. And so this morning I hope that your faith would be strengthened through this. And so that's what I want to do in the next 30 minutes or so is kind of look at some of these challenges. Now, I want to say right at the outset that um, I'm going to do my best to rein it in because last week when we talk about the physics and the mechanics of the universe and those kinds of things, that's way above and beyond me. I, I was the first to admit that. and I didn't fool anybody. Nobody left after service last week and was like, man, I didn't know you had a minor in physics. Nobody said that to me. Um, however... I do have like graduate work done in this. So today we can go real deep here. And if you wanted to email me this week, I wouldn't be like, hey, go talk to Brian. I would be like, yeah, let's get together. I'd love to talk with you about Scripture. So uh, I'm going to do my best to sort of rein it in. We, we ran a little late, so I'm looking at the clock, and we're going to do our best to sort, of, to sort of get it together. All right, so here we go. Getting into it. Here it is. One of the challenges leveled against Scripture is this, is that the New Testament was written too late to be reliable, that the New Testament was written too late to be reliable. At one point in time, uh, for secular historians and, and even sacred uh, historians, as they looked at Scripture and looked at you know, when it, you know, what was in there and what are some of the pieces we have that help us to, to date it, it was very, very fashionable to put a very late date on Scripture. And by a late date, I would say somewhere in the 200s department. And so we're looking at maybe, you know, 200 years after the time of Christ, you know, people who had heard stories, who'd heard stories, who'd heard stories, then went back 
and wrote down what some of those stories were, and that's how we ended up with the Bible. Uh, Now, the problem with this is that as we've discovered more, and we have discovered more, as we've discovered more letters and more manuscripts and more texts and correspondence, uh, we have now come to believe that the date of the New Testament really ought to be dated uh, in the very, very first century, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70 A.D., Uh, A guy by the name of John A.T. Robinson uh, for a long time had held to a very, very late date. He's a Cambridge professor and a theologian. But as he did some research, he uh, had to correct his beliefs. As he started looking at some of the newer information that we had, uh, he wrote a book titled Redating the New Testament. And it was there that he started to say, you know, we, we really can't put a date on this that late. Now, now, some of you that are here and you're uh, super, uh, maybe you're super critical or you're just super inquisitive and you're going, well, how do we know all of that? Well, let me just kind of give you a quick thumbnail sketch on how it is that we date uh, things in the New Testament. Uh, we know historically about certain people that lived during this point in time. A guy by the name of Polycarp, for instance, is one who was a direct disciple of John, one of Jesus' disciples. And he's going to be a guy that writes letters. Another bishop at this time is a real famous guy by the name of Clement. We have dates for when these men lived. Uh, we also have dates for certain events that took place uh, around the world at, this, at that point in time in that, their world. Uh, things like the destruction of Jerusalem. And so based on, you know, the dates that are there, the things that happened, the things that are recorded, based on the correspondence that go back and forth between bishops and other people. Uh, you know, if, if a bishop, maybe say Bishop of Clement, is going to write a letter to one of the, the, you know, the priests that are underneath him, and he's writing a letter uh, and he quotes, uh, you know, maybe something out of the Gospel of Mark, uh, we know that the Gospel of Mark has to be in existence, and not only that, it has to be in circulation, and not only that, it has to be widely accepted for a guy like Clement to quote it and to say, you know what, this is authority, this is important. And so based on all of those factors, of which I will do my best to not bore you with this morning, that's how we start to put dates to these things. And the dates that we're starting to look at on this is putting it somewhere in the neighborhood of of 70 AD and below, which means that if Jesus is crucified around 30 to, to 33 AD, somewhere in that window, we're talking at most maybe, you know, 40 years uh, that put us between the time that the documents are written to the time that it happened. And in fact, the New Testament accounts themselves will, will say, you know, hey, listen, this is based primarily on direct eyewitness testimony. Now, some of you, maybe you looked this up in your groups this morning. Um, one of the texts I want to look at here is, is from the gospel, uh, or I'm sorry, from John, uh, his epistle. He writes here in 1 John, this is the same guy that wrote the gospel of John, He said, we declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands. Notice all the sense words there, heard, seen, touched, concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard. John is writing here in his his prologue to the book. Uh, He's saying, listen, we saw this. It's not something we heard. It's something we saw. We experienced, we we felt Jesus as he walked by. We touched him. We knew who he was and that he was real. So that's going to be one piece of testimony there in, in the New Testament. How about this one, Luke 1. Luke, uh, the, uh, the good doctor Luke here, he writes this. He says, since many have undertaken 
to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Luke makes it clear that he did not see any of this. And that's one of the things that's important is some people will look at the Gospels and they'll say, oh, look, this, is, this comes from a different source and this was quoted someplace else and, and see, they edited all of this. Well, yeah, yeah, Luke admits that. He says, listen, I put this together. I, I did, uh, in our Sunday school class, somebody said, you know, this is investigative journalism. Yeah, that's exactly what he's trying to do. He's trying to get to the bottom of this and trying to put all this together. Now, it's clear that these writers are making the claim that they are either eyewitnesses to the actual events or that they had obtained their information from those actual eyewitnesses. Which, if you're here this morning and you're kind of putting all this together, you go, well, that doesn't mean a whole lot. I mean, anybody can claim that. I guess that's true. But here's what does make it significant, is that the New Testament accounts were written down very early. They were written down soon after the events that they chronicled. Uh, for instance, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all uh, today are believed to have been written uh, 70 A.D. earlier, John with an exception perhaps a little bit later. Uh, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg, uh, you know, he puts together a chronology for you, and let me share this one with you. So you've got the book of Acts, which is written by Luke. If you've read through the book of Acts, here's what you see. The book ends uh, a bit abruptly, kind of like riding a bicycle into a wall, uh, because you've been following the Apostle Paul all through his missionary journeys. You've been following him through uh, several trials. He's had to tell his story several times, and then it says that he is placed under house arrest there in Rome awaiting trial. And the question everybody has after they read the book of Acts is like, what happened next? Why don't we know? Well, we don't know because most likely Luke is writing this history sort of there as he's interacting with Paul, telling his story. And so the rest of the story hadn't happened to that point in time. And so if we're going to sort of operate, the, that puts us a little bit of a date there on the book of Acts. We know that that's the second part of a two-volume work. And so the first part of that is the gospel of Luke. So that's got to be written before. It's all got to be written before Paul's beheaded because it's kind of hard to, to talk with Paul and tell his story when he doesn't have his head attached to his body. And so we're going to have to put all of this in the mid-60s. We're going to have to put the, the gospel of Luke a little bit closer to 60 itself. Well, here's something we know. We know that Luke reads and quotes Mark. How do we know that? It is literally word for word about a third of the gospel of Luke. And so if Luke's going to copy Mark, guess what has to be in existence before Luke can write? The gospel of Mark has to be in existence before Luke can write. And so Mark's got to be written no later than 60 AD, possibly closer to the 50s. So this is going to put, you know, Jesus' death to the time it gets recorded somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 years. And if we're talking 2,000 years ago, this is sort of like a newsflash. Uh, some additional New Testament sources will go back even earlier than that. Galatians is probably the first book written. That's probably written before 50 A.D. So we've got all of this work that takes us very, very early. And if you read Paul's Gospels or Paul's epistles, you'll see that there's some that's even earlier than that. 
If you read through some of his epistles and you see that the text is sort of indented like a psalm, like a, like a poem, what that lets you know is that that's a, an early creed, that that's an early song that the church used to sing. And those songs maybe go back as early as just five to ten years after the time of Christ. So we've got very, very early accounts that are written down and attested to. Now let's put this in context and try to figure out why this matters. It, it, let's go with 30 years. So that zooms us back in time, if we were to go back today, to 1977. Now a lot of you don't remember that. You weren't around. Uh, some of us were just not there, sorry. Uh, others of you, as I look around, I know that you were there in the 70s. And some of you, I wonder if the 70s were all that kind to you. I don't, I don't know. Um, you don't have to confess that right now. But, but we're just talking 1977, okay? This is the year that Star Wars comes out. This is the year you've got Apple releasing Apple II. Uh, you've got Elvis Presley dies. It's a big year, okay? Now, if we were to sort of invent our own history of 1977, it wouldn't take long for somebody who had lived through that time to say, hey, time out guess what? I was there. That's not how it happened. And in fact, this is the same thing that would have happened in the early church. You've got people writing, telling accounts and stories about Jesus. And, and if you were in Sunday school, you looked maybe at that text in 1 Corinthians that tells us there was 500 people, Paul says, that Jesus appears to. And so as you're telling these stories, it wouldn't take long for somebody to sort of bump into the truth and you'd go, wait a second, that's not how that went. But instead, we don't have that. We've got the church preserving, protecting, holding these documents together, saying these are important. So I think we can put our, our doubts aside on this one and say, you know what? No, the New Testament was written very, very early. Now, some of you, you're big Dan Brown fans, or you watch a little too much National Geographic TV, and you go, well, that's right, there's some Gospels, but what about the other Gospels, the secret Gospels, like the extended edition DVD release special, you know, director's cut edition Gospels? What about those? You know, we've got these other, the Gnostic Gospels, that the church excludes and conspires to keep out of the New Testament. Well, here's the deal. These lost Gospels, they, they, they weren't lost. Like we've got them. Somebody's kept them around, obviously. You've got Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas. Uh, that's been around a little bit. And people are always like, well, what about those? Why aren't those included in the New Testament? Well, here's the answer to that. They weren't included in the New Testament because they didn't exist when the New Testament was formed. That's the problem. The early church does not exclude the Gnostic Gospels. They didn't exist when the church was still early. Uh, these lost Gospels, they are dated closer to 175 A.D. So these are over 100 years past the time of the authorship of the New Testament. These are the Gospels that have got a huge amount of time between the time of Christ and the time of the actual events. Uh, these are written by folks that we call the Gnostics. These are people who just, you know, they had different ideas about about. God. They had different ideas about Christ. They, you know, they, they taught that Jesus was sort of, uh, maybe some of them said he was a phantom. Like if he walks on the beach, he leaves no footprints. He's sort of a hologram before it exists. You know, they, they had all these different ideas because they just couldn't believe that God would come, die on a cross, and be resurrected. And so they started inventing additional tales. That's, that's part of how we got some of the Gnostic Gospels. There's other Gospels that were written because the early church was asking questions like we asked today. They wanted to know, well, what was Jesus like when he was a kid? 
And so one of my favorites is the Gospel of Thomas. And, and you read in the Gospel of Thomas, and they're, they're, it's called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, and they're making all sorts of stories up about Jesus. And one of my, my favorite one is this, is Jesus is there, and it's Sabbath, and he's a boy, so he wants to be busy, and he wants to be doing stuff. And so he goes down by the creek, and in the mud, he starts to make clay pigeons not the kind you shoot, just like, like models of clay pigeons. Like, he's making little pigeons out of clay uh, there on, on the, the bank of the creek. And, and you know, it's the Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to do work. And making, making a clay pigeon is, in fact, work. And so, you know, he knows he's not supposed to be doing this, little baby Jesus. And he hears his dad, Joseph, come around the corner, and his dad's like, hey, Jesus, where are you resting on today's lovely Sabbath? And Jesus is like, I'm totally busted. And so here's what any, you know, son of God would do. He claps his hands, and the clay pigeons turn into real pigeons, and they fly away, so that way Joseph doesn't bust Jesus. So this, this is a fantastic story. I love this story uh, that you've got recorded in that. And, and I really think that probably some really devout Christian Jesus-following people were like, what was Jesus like as a kid? And they start to write these stories. Uh, today we call it historical fiction. Uh, think of it this way. Let's say tomorrow, through some weird uh, set of events, either a giant sandstorm comes and buries Bowling Green, we're all able to leave, thankfully, or a, a, a volcano erupts and buries all of Vol- Bowling Green and just perfectly preserves this entire place. Let's just fast forward 2,000 years. You know, they've forgotten about us, they've forgotten about Bowling Green. Archaeologists come through and they start to dig up you know, Bowling Green, and they find Walmart, okay? Uh, You know, heaven help us. So they find Walmart, and they find the bargain movie bin. You know the bargain movie bin? There's a movie in the bargain movie bin uh, called Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer. Anybody heard of this film? Okay. All right. I have to admit, I have never seen it. I actually don't know anybody that's seen it. If you have, you don't have to put your hand up. But um, all right, we got a few. All right, that's good. I'm glad you own it. This is a place we should be truthful with each other. Um, So let's say a couple thousand years in the future, they excavate this, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Vampire Hunter. Uh, And so you've got this, and they, they open up the cellophane wrap, and they put it into the DVD player, and they watch it, and they go, oh, my goodness, I had no idea. This is fascinating. Abraham Lincoln was a vampire hunter. Look, come in here. And they bring it in, and they write academic papers about this, and they write, you know, it gets published in journals about how Abraham Lincoln was an honest-to-goodness vampire hunter because this is a documentary, don't you know? Uh, That's, I think, what's happened with the Gnostic Gospels is people get all hot and bothered and excited about them, and the truth is they didn't survive because really nobody thought they were worth keeping they toss it in the bargain movie bin, okay? That's what happened to these, okay? That, that's the problem. And now we uncover them 2,000 years later, and we're like, oh, my goodness, did you know? Well, no, we, we didn't know, and nobody knew. And as a matter of fact, we just, you know, a lot of this stuff was invented very, very late. All right, so that's the second challenge. All right, third challenge is this, is that the Bible is full of myths and stories of miracles that can no longer be believed by thinking people. All right, this argument is a bit circular. Um, It works something like this. Miracles can't happen because miracles can't happen. And we know that they can't happen because miracles can't happen. And that's just sort of how it goes. And if you start with just that premise that miracles can't happen because miracles can't happen, then you are left to figure out what did happen or why is this recorded this way? Uh, If you start with that premise and you say, all right, that's just the way that it has to be, then it's just the way that it has to be. 
But if you look at, you know, maybe some of the things we've talked about previously, God creating the world, all those types of things, you start to go, well, what if it could have happened? And that's really the question I want to ask is, is what if it could have happened? Because this claim is often just asserted by those who deny miracles uh, universally. They have an anti-supernatural presupposition. Uh, Whereas if we, you know, as we looked at last week, think that there might be a reason that there is a God that created something, you know, like the universe, the idea that he could give sight to the blind is sort of like child's play in comparison to that. And so we've got to ask ourselves, why is it that we have to have that assumption? You know, this is one of the reasons why the Gospels were dated so much later for a long time, is scholars came to it and said, these talk about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Therefore, they had to be written after the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Because they said it had to be after that, it just had to be. Now, as we're getting manuscript evidence and other things, we're starting to believe that it happened much earlier. It's also coincidental, we talked about this in my Sunday school class, that at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, guess who was not in the city? Most of the Christians had left. They'd gone to another city called the ancient, the ancient city of Pella. They had evacuated the city. Why did they leave? Because there had been a long tradition of prophecy about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, and the Christians leave. And that's, that's one of the things. Prophecy is powerful evidence for the Bible, and I think that it supports the veracity of miracles. L- let me give you a couple of these. How about this? 700 years before the time of Christ, Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be pierced for our iniquities. And you read through his passages there in, in the suffering servant passages of Isaiah, and you just read that and you go, man, this is so descriptive of Christ on the cross. How about this? A thousand years before Christ, David prophesies about crucifixion in Psalm 22. Here's what he writes. It says, they pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. It's like he's writing this looking at the cross. Now, now here's the amazing thing about this. Piercing your hands and your feet. Whenever does that happen except at crucifixion? But here's the deal. Crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. Nobody had been crucified at this point in time. So how is it that David is able to write in such stunning detail a thousand years before the time of Christ? How about this 700 years before Christ? Micah 5.2, it predicts that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And so yes, as a church, as a Christ follower myself, I affirm and believe not only in prophecy, but in the miracles, in the the amazing, miraculous life of Jesus Christ, of His death, burial, and physical resurrection. And it's the New Testament's historical accuracy that I think should lead us to believe that the authors worked to record truth. If you really want to nerd out on some of this, there's a book called uh, The Historical Jesus written by Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. He chronicles a hundred facts about Jesus' life teaching death and resurrection in 39 sources that are outside of the Bible. And so there's a lot of historical information that as we get it and it comes in, we start to go, man, that really, really lines up with Scripture. Uh, And it's amazing. Luke, in particular, is regarded by secular historians as being of great historical value. Uh, He uses words for things that we didn't think were real until we actually did the archaeology and discovered that, in fact, yes, what he is describing is how they talked about it. Now, it's important for us to to keep this one thing in mind. 
is that, you know, these are people who lived for Jesus and they died for Jesus. Paul is beheaded. Peter is crucified upside down. Uh, John is in exile until his death in the Isle of Patmos. These are people who write the New Testament. These are people who said, we saw this and we will die before we tell you differently. Now, it's one thing for me to die for my faith because I never saw Jesus. I, I just, we'll just own that, right? Nobody in here did. And so if we were all die for our faith, that would be one thing. We'd be saying, you know, these people were convinced and very faithful. Uh, but that wouldn't mean a whole lot about the truth necessarily of it because people die for beliefs all the time that aren't true. But these are people who said, you know what? I looked at it. I saw it. I touched it. I knew Jesus. And I saw him come back from the dead. And I will die before I, I deny that. So if these people are interested in truth because they've stake, stuck, staked their life on it, I think that we should realize that they are committed to telling us the truth. All right, challenge four. The Bible can't be trusted because it is full of contradictions. Now, I, I like this one in particular because I, I think this just sort of like a talking point. Uh, I love to ask people who say, you know, the Bible's full of contradictions. You know, it's, it's a great question to then ask this. Uh, what contradictions are you in particular bothered by? Because most of the time, folks haven't really spent a lot of time, I think, dealing with the contradictions. And so if you're here, and that's maybe one of the things you say, I would say, you know, look at what those contradictions are. Because nine times out of ten, you look at these contradictions, and it's pretty easy to explain them. I mean, for instance, the Old Testament says it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? But then Jesus shows up, and he's like, I'm telling you, uh, you've heard that it was said eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I say to you this. And so right there, it's contradicting itself, right? But Jesus acknowledges that. He says, you've heard this. I'm telling you something different. And I'm telling you something different because the way that God is dealing with us is changing. And so, you know, you look at contradictions, and I think often we can deal with them on a one-by-one -one basis. Now, some folks do have specific passages. One of the ones that's really difficult to sort of put together is, is when we get the four Gospels all putting together sort of those last three, uh, four days of Jesus' life. You know, uh, in one gospel, it seems that uh, there's, you know, there's two angels that are there at the tomb. In another gospel, you know, it's one. In one gospel, it's like Jesus is riding two donkeys. I don't know how that happens. And then in another gospel, it's like Jesus is riding one donkey. And so people were like, see, you know, they can't count donkeys or angels. So, you know, you clearly can't trust Scripture. Well, you know, let's just think about this, you know, sort of this rule of math, right? Where, wherever there are two... There is also one. Um, this, is, I, this is my kind of math, all right? So wherever there's two, there is also one. And so because one author mentions there was one angel that said this, he's not saying there wasn't two. I mean, it would be like after service today, I'd say to my wife, I'd say, hey, you know, I, I saw a guy at church that was wearing shorts. Now, I, I'm not lying to her. There's multiple guys that are here wearing shorts this morning. And, you know, I just happened to see one. And so she's not going to look at me after service and be like, you are a liar. <laughs> there was 10. Maybe there was 10. I don't know. All I said was there's one. The only way I'm lying is if I'm like, hey, there was one and only one guy wearing shorts at church today. Now we've got a problem if there's 10. See, and often Scripture uses words figuratively the same way we do. You know, if you're at Walmart and there's a line and you're in a hurry, you know, you you're talking to somebody on the phone, you're like, there's a thousand people in front of me here in this line. 
Friends, a thousand people, you know, are hardly going to fit in Walmart, all right? So we've got fluidity in our language. Same thing's true in Scripture. We've got to, you know, allow them to have the same standard that we hold to ourselves. So that's one thing I think that's important. Um, You know, there's another thing. A lot of the contradictions in the Bible, I think, in some ways are a testimony to the truth of it. You know, you ask five people who saw the same event, you know, what happened? You're going to get five different accounts. One guy was standing over here. One guy was over here. One guy was right here. This is why, you know, you watch sports. What do you got? You got instant replay. So we can watch this one more time from one different perspective. It's important for us to have that. And so the fact that, you know, one gospel records it this way, as Matthew remembers it, and another gospel records it as Luke, probably, you know, as he's talked to some of his folks and John, as he remembers it, there's going to be a little bit of difference. But here's the thing, as you put all those stories together, what do they tell us? That Jesus went to the cross, that he died, and that he rose again. Whether he got there on one donkey or two, they all agree on that. And I think it's important for us to, to think through how this is. I mean, in some ways it might be suspicious if you had four accounts and they were all exactly the same. It might be like they got together and got their stories straight, if you know what I'm saying. And so I think some of these differences, in fact, are testimony to the truth of Scripture. All right, we could talk a lot more about that. Um, five, how about this? The uh, Scripture, the Bible, has been corrupted over time. All right, this one is repeated a lot. You can't trust the Bible. It's sort of like telephone. I whisper in, in Charlie's ear over here. I say, hey, I'm hoping I can get a club sandwich today for lunch. By the time it gets all the way over here, somebody says, Weston likes to eat out of the trash truck and hit people you know, with a basketball. You know, I, how that happens, I've got no clue. You know, one guy heard something and it got passed around differently. Scripture does not get transmitted like that, right? Okay, I just, I, maybe you don't know that. I'm just letting you know. Scripture doesn't get transmitted like that, all right? It's not like it went from Greek to Latin to German to English. It went from Greek to Latin, and then it went from Greek to German, and then it went from Greek to English. And every time Christian scholars discover more manuscripts, they make a note of it. There's entire books dedicated to why certain people, you know, the United Bible Society keeps notes of why they accept one text and not another. And you can buy this if you've got the money and you've got the time and you've got the desire. You can go buy those and they'll tell you, we accepted this manuscript over the other one because we felt this was true. And, and this is the thing, is that every good translation goes back to the earliest and the best documents, noting why they use their sources. There's nobody trying to pull a fast one on you. How about this? Go to the end of the book of Mark, Mark 16, if you've got a Bible. Mark 16, verse 8. You've got one ending there. It says, So they said uh, nothing to anyone, for fear and amazement uh, had seized them, and they, were, they said nothing to anyone, and they were afraid. And the women run screaming from the tomb. You now have a set of double brackets that shows up, uh, and it's noted the shorter ending of Mark. You have another set of brackets that shows up. It says the longer ending of Mark. Uh, And if you read the footnote there, it will tell you why. It will say some of the most ancient authorities bring the book to the close at the end of verse 8. In other words, the scholars are going, you know what? We're not entirely sure those last, you know, 10 verses should even be in the Bible. And they're letting you know that. Why? Because we are pursuing truth inside of Christian scholarship, and if it's not there, we don't want to pretend like it is. That's the amazing thing. We've got a huge number of early copies of the New Testament. Let's look at this graphic here. Uh, We've got roughly 6,000 early copies of the New Testament. Most of them are Greek. Some of them are very, very ancient Latin. Uh, So that's how many we have. 
Uh, if you, you can't see, but you, we've got one copy of the Gospel of Judas. We've got two copies of the Gospel of Mary, uh, four of the Gospel of Thomas. The next largest work we have is Homer's Iliad. We have 650 copies, early copies of Homer's Iliad. And today, scholars, Greek scholars will say, yeah, that's the way that it's written today. It's awfully close to the original. And yet we have so much scrutiny about the New Testament represented by the giant hot air balloon where you've got 6,000 copies of the New Testament. And so because we have so many copies of the Scripture, I think it's pretty clear to me that as we've got people going through them, we have got a very accurate picture of what the New Testament was about and what it said, and we can be confident in the integrity and the reliability of the New Testament. We're finding more and more stuff out all the time. Um, even the Old Testament's amazing. The Dead Sea Scrolls got exhumed. We had a copy of the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, dated a thousand years earlier than the, the earliest copy we had previously. And when the scholars got that, they're like, oh, we're going to find all sorts of contradictions. You know what? They didn't find them. <laughs> they weren't there because of the way the Scripture had been transmitted. Things we don't have time to talk about right now. Uh, it, it's very, very meticulous. All right, I want to kind of summarize what we've learned here. All right, here we go. Uh, the New Testament, written early, presenting reliable historical accounts of God's activities through Christ. Second is this, is that the Gnostic Gospels are late accounts, and they were really never accepted as true. Third, the Bible is not full of myths. It tells amazing things about God interacting with His people, uh, fulfilling prophecies, and performing miracles uh, as signs of Christ's divinity. Fourth, the Bible is not full of contradictions. Uh, most of the alleged discrepancies, I think, are pretty easily answered. There are some you've got to do your homework on. I'll admit that. And then fifth, finally here, the Bible has not been corrupted over time. Rather, the wealth of early copies we have give us great confidence in the uh, reliable versions that we have today that are being translated. So the big question is this, can the Bible be trusted? I think the answer is yes. Uh, the evidence tells us that, yes, it can be trusted. Uh, two here, Jesus trusted it. He explicitly endorsed the Old Testament in His own teaching, holding up the truth of the Old Testament. Third, is our church trust the Bible? Now, you might say, well, that doesn't give me much faith in the Bible. I, I get that. I mean, no, nobody here is, you know, PhD so-and-so working in original languages. I get that. I, I guess I put that up there because if the Bible's trustworthy, and we're building our faith on what the Bible teaches us, I think maybe in some ways that makes our church trustworthy. And then fourth and finally is this, is that the Bible is the Word of God, and it's useful if you use it. George Gallup uh, did a poll, uh, and he figured this out. He said, Americans revere the Bible, but they don't use it. They don't read it. And so this morning, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, I would say this. Here's the challenge. If the Bible is God's Word and it is trustworthy, why don't you do something with it? Why don't you open it up this week and, and read it? If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christ follower and you're thinking, man, I, I just, I don't know. Well, I would say the same thing. Open up the Scripture. Start maybe in the Gospel of, of Mark. It's short. It kind of gets through all the things pretty quickly. And read it and see what is written there, knowing that it is trustworthy. And say, you know what, God, what are the things maybe that you would show me here in your Word? All right, let me pray.